The Magic Book Club Podcast. Hello, welcome along to the Magic Book Club podcast with Benson's for Beds. My name is Tom Price, and this week uh, we are joined by a journalist, uh, a novelist, and something of a David Bowie fan, John O'Connell. Welcome to the Book Club podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, it is fair to say if you've you've put together this this fascinating book, which which. Uh, takes all of David Bowie, it lists David Bowie's favourite books. That's it, basically, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's based on a list um, that was released by the Victorian Albert Museum um, when, um, you probably remember a few years ago, there was a massive exhibition called David Bowie Is, which yes. looked back over his life and career. And when that exhibition um, went to Canada in 2014, um, they issued this, this list, really, as a, as a PR exercise, I think, to drum up some interest in it. And it was this list of his 100 favourite books. Um, and it's a, it's fascinating. And mm. uh, right from the start, it, people were pouring over it and um, founding book clubs and lots and blogs and that kind of thing. And, yeah. Um, I, 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 and so, yeah, it, it, was, it was a fascinating thing. So have you always been a David Barry fan? Yeah, I came in around the Let's Dance. So I would have been... 12, I think, and I was just instantly formative hooked. years. But then, formative of course, years. he had a bad 80s, but people forget, <laughs> you know, it wasn't his greatest period. So I spent the rest of the 80s defending him against people who were like, oh, why can't you like the Smiths instead? It's um, funny how not, did, a lot of people had a bad 80s. Well, the Smiths had a great 80s. Morris has had a bad everything a, since. Yes. <laughs> really bad. Fair to say. Yes. Really bad teenies, whatever they're going to be called. Um, but like Bob uh, Bob Dylan had a terrible 80s, mm. went all crazy. Um, but is it fair to say David Barry having a bad 80s, isn't that just him being David Barry, exploring new stuff, reinventing himself, becoming a different thing, which is what he did, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's always a, you're going to hit a difficult patch perhaps when you get to that age. I mean, he was sort of late 30s, early 40s at that point. I think that's a tricky time. Tricky You've time written about this before, haven't you? Um, and... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, you know, well, I think we have to let him get over his little bump in the road and, and look what he went on to do. I mean, he had a fantastic late 90s and really fantastic you know, period just at the twilight of his career when he came back in 2013 with The Next Day and then, of course, Blackstar, his final album, which, I mean, I thought those were two of his best albums. Yeah, Blackstar was an amazing album anyway, but then knowing what we then subsequently knew that he wrote it, is that right? He wrote it knowing he, he had a, a, a death sentence effectively? That's right, yeah, he did, yeah. It was amazing. Um, and he, his influence is huge. And it was kind of, I don't know, it, it, maybe it's of the, maybe because of his death, but, but he's become iconic in a, in a whole different way post, post-mortem, if you like. He, like the way that people talk about him now. When he was alive, people are like, oh, David Bowie's really good. Mm. But now he's like, he, he's, he's, he's just huge. And, and, and people take him very seriously, what he did and his artistic contribution. They take it much more seriously, it feels like, than they did when he was alive. It's true. It does happen, doesn't it? I feel like a similar thing's happened to Freddie Mercury. I think if you'd gone yes. back to, you know, the late 1980s and told people that in 25 years' time, the, the Queen would be seen as being on the sort of on the same level of, as the Beatles in terms of influence, you know, yeah. that, that they would be this massive, massive band, I think they'd have said... You know, no one would have believed it, and, yeah. and yet that's it's come to pass. Don't tell Danny Baker that you're equating the uh, the Queen with the well, Beatles. Have you heard uh, Danny Baker's loathing mm, of Queen? No, I, can, ima- I can imagine it. Imagine <laughs> yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, but it's true. And so David Barry, we have him. He's in. He's very much in the canon. And now we have this sort of Barry canon that he's put together. The uh, the hundred literary heroes who changed his life. That's the name of John O'Connell's book, Bowie's books. Um, and 
let's first of all, before we go in and start looking at some of the books that are on this list, which are eclectic to say the least, as you'd imagine, as you'd expect, um, the, the importance of reading to David Barry's life, that's what I found really interesting initially. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he seems to have caught the bug fairly early. Um, one of the most important books for him, a book that he was given when he was really quite young, was um, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. He was yeah. given that by his um, elder half-brother, um, Terry, um, who was very into the beats and really introduced young David to all the things that were sort of cool coming out of America. So, you know, jazz and you know, Eric Dolphy and kind of Blue Beat from Jamaica and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, beat literature was a part of that package. And he was, you know, but Bobby was obsessed with beat literature all the way through his life. And, and also not just the books themselves, but a lot of beat books were written using a particular particular kind of device. You know, it was all about, um, if you think about how On the Road was written, it was written very, very, very quickly in a kind of drug fuel burst, mm. um, all in one go on a sheet of kind of like tracing paper. You can tell. Uh, yeah. There's no need for plot. Yeah. Although he loved like... that kind of thing. He loved the, the immediacy of it and the idea, you know, just get it out, get it out. He was quite, I think, not impatient, but he was, he liked... To do, he he liked the moment. Beat is all about the thrill of the moment, the pure purity of the moment. Um, and Bowie was like that too, from what people say. You know, he he didn't like spending a long time in the recording studio. He was quite impatient with all of that stuff. He wanted to just, you know, get it down, get it out, and um, and you know, capture the energy of it. Mm. And these books helped to, him to crystallize what he wanted to do and, and work yeah, it out. Yeah, that's right. I think if you, it's a lot of the books on the list, they 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 advocate that way of making art. Um, so it become, they, they form a kind of loose manifesto for what David Bowie was trying to do. But it's really interesting that we've done this with Bowie because, like, for example, you wouldn't have a book, or maybe you would, Freddie, you know, Freddie Mercury's favourite paintings or something. But do you know what I mean? What is it that, that this list of books, all this writing, all these ideas that take a guy from Bromley, uh, it was Bromley, wasn't it? And that yeah, was, that's that's right, always yeah. the thing that we, we hear about David Bowie. Mm. He's this average suburban kid. And, and what is it about him? And it can't just be natural artistic genius. There's got to be um, something that's laid onto him, something that he's ingesting. And now we've got it in this book. I think he was always an autodidact. I mean, he was someone who didn't really do very well at school. And clearly that's not because he wasn't bright. Um, I think he was just impatient with uh, that word again, you know, with formal education. He didn't like being taught things. He wanted to teach himself. Mm. And books were a part of that. He, um, also, I think it's worth remembering that in the 50s, when he was growing up, the paperback hadn't been around that long. Well, the Penguin paperback, as we as we think of it, there, there was only Penguin was only founded in 1935. So, and kind of before that, books were very much were, for people with money. You went to the library. There were people with money. They, you know, that you didn't. That, whereas by the 50s, there were these little capsules of democratized knowledge. You know, and you could you know go down and you know when he was working, he worked for a while not far from here actually at an advertising agency on New Bond Street. Okay. And um, you can imagine him sort of going down to Tottenham Court Road in his lunchtime and browsing the secondhand bookshops and coming back with all these books on, you know, Camus and Sartre or whatever. Mm. And, you know, it was really exciting. The books were really quite cool and sexy. And, yeah. um, and also the, the, the written word had this kind of transgressive potential, which we've sort of forgotten. A lot of the books on the list are books that were banned. Um, so you've got you Lady know, Chatterley's Lady, Lover Lady Chatterley's Lover big which, one, yeah. you know, when Bowie was 14 the, the Chatterley trial which is a massive oh, huge thing, moment huge moment yeah. in, um, in in British kind of legal history so what year was that the like 60 something was it? oh the, I'm trying to think of the Philip Larkin family but the end of the end, it, 
between the end of the Chatty Chan, the Beatles first LP. When was the Beatles first LP? That would have been 63. So it must have been 62, 63, around there. So, uh, but it was very much that that led, well, it wasn't just that, but this was the beginning of the permissive 60s, which led to Barry's moment. Absolutely. So after that, you know, the floodgates open really after the Chatterley trial. And, you know, even before then, I think there was some pretty racy stuff. I mean, on the list, you've got a book by John Brain called Room at the Top, which again is part of um, a book that probably lots of his friends would have read. It's quite racy. It was made into a film um, that was, you know, quite so it would have been quite saucy. Mm. Um, and um, the other person who's very important is Keith Waterhouse. Oh yeah, Billy, Billy Liar. Billy Liar, yeah. which is again a, a, a book about a sort of suburban fantasist. He's, he's he's bored doing his humdrum job in a um, undertaker's, and so he invents this. The rain falls hard on a humdrum town. Yeah, yeah, so (laughs) absolutely. Um, So that was a really important book for him. He would have been reading all of that around the same time, I think. It's worth saying, actually, isn't it, Uh, still relatively early doors on this episode, that you don't have... Because I like David Bowie, but I'll be honest, I'm a bit of a... To quote Alan Partridge, I like the best of one. You know, I'm not a huge... I'm not a massive fan, but I, I, I love his his greatest hits and stuff however reading this it doesn't matter that I'm not a massive Barry fan it's all about just it's just a great list of books and I I love nothing more than talking about the act of reading like I'm obsessed with reading I love talking about individual books but this idea of of listing things in that sort of Nick Hornby way getting your list and getting your favourites together uh, and doing this list in the context as a launch pad for uh, an artistic genius which he doubtless was um, it's a really interesting thing so you don't have to be a massive Barry fan to enjoy this I think it's fair to say No I'm really pleased you've said that because I, I really wanted it to be friendly and accessible and not a a book for Bowie obsessives. I mean, there are plenty of books for Bowie obsessives out there. And I yes. think it's possible with this stuff really to sort of, you know, you could quite easily disappear out of your own fundament. Yeah. And um, I had to kind of rein myself in on several occasions where I thought I was going a bit a bit far. So, yeah, it's really just a hope. As I said, it's, it's a friendly book that even casual fans who know him from Life on Mars or Let's Dance or Absolute Beginners mm. can enjoy and, and get to just get a sense of what made him tick. But also, it's a really great way of going through a compendium of really good books. I and mean, it's, you know, it's good to know what made him tick, but it's good to see what, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking for new books to read, then, you know, maybe I'll find, um, for example, uh, In Cold Blood, uh, Truman Capote. I mean, that's a, mm. you know, a classic. And to be reminded of that and then to read what is that, you know, that's on page 159 of your book and then he's like two pages on it. Yeah. So as someone with, in our Twitter-obsessed era, we can have a good two pages. Tell me a bit about David Bowie and tell me what the book's about. Tell me what's going on here. And, you know, it's a, just a good kind of dive in, dive out kind of read this, isn't it? Yeah, no, thanks. I'm so pleased you said that. That's that, yeah. And it's, it's just so nice to think that someone like Bowie was, was, was so into reading um, at a time when perhaps, you know, we don't read as much as we used to because we've got so many distractions and um, we... we uh, you know, it was yeah, it was really important to him, and it's nice for perhaps for younger people to see that you know this this great cultural figure, you know, really loved books. I can sort of say to my daughters, you know, look, look, David yeah. Bowie read, you know, yeah, and, yeah, 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 and hopefully that makes them think, oh yeah, maybe I should read a bit more. It's a really important part of the maths when you're putting together someone as as massive as him. Look at what he was look look at what he was reading and what he was thinking about, and we've got this this list. And and it's it's a hilarious list as well. It's very eclectic. So you've got things like Private Eye. You've got Viz, which is doubtless. But, yeah, he loved Viz. He had a I mean, he had a very silly sense of humour. I mean, he he loved Viz and he loved Pete and Dud and all that kind of stuff. As a lot of the rock aristocracy of the seventies did, they were all a bit obsessed with Pete and Dud. Um, so yeah. 
that stuff not it's not surprising that it's on there also the beano now i love the beano because if it wasn't for the beano i wouldn't have started reading it was the beano that got me into it yeah 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 Absolutely. That was, that was my practice. That was my practice grant. That's where I learned to read. <laughs> I blame the Beano. Um, loads of other great books in here as well. Uh, Vile Bodies, Evelyn War, Ian McEwan. That, that's another thing as well, which I found interesting. David Bowie, he was obsessed with books. And he was obsessed with the literary world as well. He was a bit of a literary gossip, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he was very friendly with a lot of writers. Um, he was um, Hanif Qureshi, who wrote The Buddha of Suburbia, he was friendly with and obviously wrote the soundtrack for the BBC's early 90s adaptation of The Buddha of Suburbia. And that was an amazing story, wasn't it? Because Hanif Qureshi was a, obviously a massive Bowie fan, is that right? That's and right. Then... So I think they went for lunch and, and Hanif Qureshi had kind of worked himself up to sort of asking Bowie if they could have permission to use some of his songs yeah. in, the sh- in, the, in the series. And, uh, and Bowie said, oh, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> And, imagine uh, imagine you know, that. I t- tell you what, I won't just let you use the songs. I'll write a whole load of new ones for you. Can so you imagine I think we can getting... imagine the look on Hannah Krishi's face. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was very friendly with um, William Boyd was another one. Um, they both wrote for an, an art magazine in the late 90s. And they were involved in a, in a sort of slightly strange art fraud that they perpetrated. A, a, a playful art fraud. Tell me. And, um, they invented an American artist who didn't exist. <laughs> and tried to pass him off as a great kind of missing link in American art history. Amazing. And they produced this book called uh, Nat Tate, An American Artist. And um, they held an exhibition and all this kind of stuff. And actually it was blown by a journalist, I think just as it was starting to kind of get, get traction. Bit. Yeah, yeah. So everyone involved was a bit cross. But, um, but it was a very quite funny scam. And again, very much the kind of thing that he liked to do. But he poked fun at the establishment as well, didn't he? I mean, that's why in his autodidact, he didn't get, what did he leave with, 1-0 level or something from school? He didn't yeah. want the establishment or the man telling him what to read. He wanted to choose himself. He wanted to do all this stuff himself, didn't he? That makes sense, that fits. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think that's why he was quite into, um, almost like you could say constructing his own kind of cosmology. You know, mm. if you look at a lot of the books on the list, He's not that interested in science. He's interested in magic. He's interested in that sort of pre-scientific era. He's very interested in the occult. And there's a great line in one of the one of the books on the list, which is that the first scientists were the last alchemists. You know, there wasn't the you know the world didn't become scientific and rational overnight. You know, mm. for a long time there was this sort of you know people believed in all kinds of stuff. And I think he never quite stopped believing in. Um, UFOs and aliens and and the paranormal. He loved the paranormal. So there are lots of books on the list that deal with the paranormal. Yes, he had a very open brain. You'd have to to be like that. I mean, you've got yeah, well, you've got Angela Carter, of course, with sort of the magical uh, side of things. Um, and interestingly, there you said about William Boyd. There's no William Boyd book on this list, or am I wrong? Is there no, one? there isn't. No, it didn't guarantee you a place mm. on the list. Being his friend, another one who's he's not there. He, he championed a lot. Was a, is a writer called Jake Arnott. He wrote a book called The Long Firm. Oh, yeah, Long Firm um, trilogy, amazing. Yeah, he was very supportive of Jay Carnot, but he's, you know, he's not there. But. So, did David put this list together? When did he put this list together? Well, when it first appeared, there was a certain amount of debate about wh- how much he'd been involved in it and whether perhaps the VNA curators had done it. Right. I-, I think he was very involved in it. I think you can feel his fingerprints all over it. It's just, it's yeah, too curators per- wouldn't have put the Beano in there. It's too personal and weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just, why would you put Edward Bulwillett and Zanoni on it? It's this really <laughs> obscure kind of early science fiction novel from the 1840s. I mean, only Bowie would have thought to put that on the list. It's, it's just, it's too weird. Um, 
So have you read all the books on the list? I, um, I have. I haven't. I didn't read every last word. I mean, actually, Zanoni, this early 18th, this 1840s sci-fi novel, I've got to admit I didn't read every last word of that because it is so difficult. It's so dense and it's written in this... Well, I think it, I think it would have been hard to read even in the 1840s. Oh, right. I mean, it, it's just so obscure and yeah. hard work and you right. can't follow the plot. And I oh, really, I love those ones. I really tried hard with it. And, and you're one of those people... I've got an English degree. You know, yeah. I, I, I struggled you, with it. Are you one of those people who feels you should finish every book you start? I feel, yeah, I feel a little bit bad. I yeah. feel a little, little bit of self-loathing if I don't. You know? Okay, all right, don't worry. David Bowie will forgive you, it's fine, don't worry. Um, loads of great books on this list. So uh, 100, uh, the, the 100 literary heroes who changed David Bowie's life. Um, John, it's so, thank you so much for, for coming in. It's really great to meet yeah, you're you. You're welcome, this, thank you for asking really me. Interesting idea that you've, you've pulled this thing together. Um, what's next for you, John? Are you writing Are you, are you writing fiction again? Which you've dipped your toe into? Or? I, don't, I don't really know. I quite like the idea of doing something about albums that went bad. Okay. Like, like rock albums or pop albums that everyone involved wanted, thought they were making like the best album in the world and then actually it came out and <laughs> it wasn't very good. So the actual quality of it was bad by the yeah, time it came yeah, out? Yeah, maybe. Do you have any in mind? Oh, but... I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> maybe, maybe a few too many drugs had been taken in the studio. I see. Um, all right, listen, uh, John O'Connell, thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. Brilliant to meet you. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, Barry's books, The 100 Literary Heroes Who Changed His Life, is out now. Also, you met him as well, didn't you? We didn't really mention that. Be quite I did meet him. I did meet him. I met him in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, I went to New York to talk to him about the Meltdown Festival. because I, I worked yes. for Time Out at that point, and we sponsored it. And um, yeah, he was very charming and friendly and, and slightly manic. He had this kind of... He's very restless. You could feel this restless intelligence in the room as though... You know, he had. I was having a million ideas all at once and didn't know quite which one to pursue at mm. any given point. So you could see what he would have been like to work, particularly when he had a couple of cups of coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That definitely fits. Definitely fits. Uh, John, thank you very much. That was brilliant. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you.